When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, Tommy, uh, today for the podcast, we have what I think is perhaps the most interesting topic that we've covered all year. Yeah, we're talking about depreciation among new vehicles, and we're talking about the cars that depreciate the worst and the cars that have the best resale value. In other words, uh, the cars that hold their value the least uh, and those that hold their value the most. And it's funny because some of those cars that hold their values the most actually have appreciated, believe it or not because of the funky times that we live in. But before we get to that, let's kind of talk about a couple things first and foremost. Uh, First, where did me and you just go this weekend? Well, we just went to Idaho to buy a new truck. Yeah, I want to thank uh, Petersons uh, for helping us buy what I believe is the least expensive, cheapest new four-wheel drive half ton in the land. Tell them what we bought. We bought the Ram 1500 Classic, and it's a little two-door with the six-foot-four box. And we're going to be talking about depreciation today, and certainly this is a vehicle which has been around brand new now for over, um, what, 13 years? It came out in 2009. So it's a vehicle which is uh, depreciated to a big extent, but a car you can still buy brand new. Yeah, we bought the Classic, which basically means that uh, in 2009, uh, that was the latest generation of Ram 1500. And then a couple of years ago, they basically switched to a new generation, but kept building the old one, Tommy. Absolutely right, which is pretty wild. So we had a fun road trip, but that's not what they're here to talk about today. No, but there is a video up on TFL Truck uh, and TFL Now uh, that basically goes over why we bought it, how much we paid for it. So I did want to talk about that because uh, that video is blowing up, dude. It was getting, get this, 17,000 views an hour. That's a lot. Wow, pretty amazing. Yeah, who would have thunk that uh, cheap uh, half tons would be so popular? And now we just got to figure out what to name it. But there's also a... um, poll running on TFL Trucks community page where we're taking your suggestion and you guys can vote on what you think we should call it. All right, should we dive right into the list? Not yet. Why are we making them wait? Uh, because I have one more thing I want to talk about. Okay. So uh, I don't think it's a ramp, but I, I, I am a little bit confused by this. Uh, so I, I do want to get your input. So when we were driving it back from Boise, which is, you know, it's an 800-mile road trip, right? We experienced some interesting, um, I wouldn't call it a phenomenon, I would call it Uh, driver truck tactics and maybe this is something that's been going on for a long time but I've been noticing it a lot recently and that is you're driving along uh, on I-80 which is an 80 mile an hour speed limit and all of a sudden you pull up behind a truck that is passing another truck yeah and your truck your new truck in our case is getting peppered by rocks right because they're throwing up a lot of rocks trucks do that they have a lot of wheels right 
and you're like, okay, I'll just wait for the guy on the left to pass the guy on the right. Except the guy on the left takes literally, and I'm not making this up, like five miles to pass the guy on the right. It seems like the, the, the delta of difference in speeds between the two trucks is maybe a half a mile an hour. So you're just sitting there, sitting there, and cars are piling up behind us, and this truck is taking for five miles. What is up with that? Why? What's going on? Why is this? Is, are they both, like, have cruise control set, and the guy who's passing has his set at 81, and the guy who's not being passed has it set at 80 or whatever? Is that what's happening? Well, I think we should give truckers a break. They are the backbone of America. They are what bring all of our goods to and from I'm, I'm, every I'm just place. curious why that's happening, though. Well, because, I mean, we're also talking about high rates of speed. Trucks are especially fully loaded, not exactly performance machines. And even if we were stuck behind them for five miles at 80 miles an hour, that's maybe, what, four minutes of, of, of time behind the behind it's not, the truck. It's not the time. It's the fact that you're sitting there getting peppered by well, rocks. Well, may I suggest? Because you're either behind one or the other truck. You, may I suggest no third lane. giving yes. them a wider following distance? Yes, but there's... Like, then there's like four cars behind you. I think the issue is not so much the truck drivers. It's more of your severe lack of patience coming in here. No, no, literally, dude. I mean, it was like I was watching the shadow as a guy. I was there I'm, with you. And I, I had no issue with the situation, but you were very grumpy with the situation. Well, because I was getting the brand so, new truck, so which is, I was getting peppered scoot by Scoot back by 100 rocks. feet. Scoot back 100 feet. No issues. Look, I'm not. You're making me sound like I'm, well, I'm I upset. Well, it's a non-issue here. It was. I'm curious. Like, if I'm passing somebody, right? I want to get past them as soon as possible and move over to my right. Why is this guy taking five miles to make a pass? Because our truck weighs 4,800 pounds and it's 300 horsepower, and he weighs 80,000 pounds trying to pass another 80,000-pound truck So you're saying, you're saying they're both floored? Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. Or yeah. they're on cruise control, or, um, you know, they were maybe one person was using the draft off the other semi, and then when they passed, they lost the draft. All I'm saying is I think you got to be a little bit more patient. I know it does make a lot of people grumpy out there, but the key, I did, and there, especially on a road trip, is just let I, the guys do their say, thing. Uh, did I say I was impatient? All I said, Tommy, was I was curious why it takes a truck driver so long to pass another truck. And I was hoping that our esteemed audience would give me an answer to that. Uh, yeah, maybe they will. But I assume it's because of heavyweights, um, speed limiters, too. Some trucks have speed limiters on them as well. But um, not to fear, we did get past the semi with not a rock chip to be found. Yes, luckily, um, because um, I backed off severely. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what you do in those instances, and just let the big trucks do their thing. And the other thing I want to talk about, uh, because obviously this is something that's affecting uh, you guys out there, is not if you're watching this on YouTube, but if you're listening to it as a podcast, we recently uh, had our, uh, our host add ads to this podcast and a lot of people well not a lot but we've gotten two emails where people are unhappy about the way that the ads are included in the podcast mm. uh, and we have no control of that by the way they insert them you know at will whenever they feel is right that's uh, true yeah. uh, so i apologize to you guys if um you don't uh like where they're being inserted or how they come in the middle of a sentence but there's nothing we can do about that i'm hoping that as uh, the podcast provider gets better at inserting these ads and they become more natural and less, uh, I guess, objectionable. Yeah, great point. Um, we, we don't have actual ability to pick and kind of curate the, the ads that you guys are. are or kind where of, they go, yeah. or what ads they're running, or how loud they are. We have none of that. We can control none of that. So we do apologize about that. Um, but we do appreciate your support. And if you do like the podcast and you like our constant bickering, um, check out the Patreon um, uh, website. 
uh, and we greatly appreciate your help with anything podcast related. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is always a two-way conversation. All right, so let's get to the list. I noticed that um, you're um, at our comments, but you've gone back to the list. So uh, who did this list, Tommy? Yeah, so this is from IC Cars. Um, it's a big research firm which looks into automobile trends and um, interesting kind of shifts in the automotive landscape. And they've come up with this fantastic list on vehicles that hold their, their value the best and vehicles which depreciate the quickest. So should we start with the vehicles that hold the value or the ones that depreciate? Uh, I think we're going to start with the ones that depreciate quickest and then do the ones that hold their value. And in typical TFL fashion, we will do this starting at number 10 and going to number one. And the other thing we're going to try to do, Tommy, is, you know, we've been doing this now for, gosh, 12 years. We've driven, I think, all of these cars. So we're going to take a stab at why these cars are either holding their value or rapidly not holding their value. And if you don't have the full hour to listen to us talk about this, check out TFLcar.com where we have a concise version, but I think we'll make it fun and entertaining. I would check out alltfl.com. So on average per the study, most cars will lose a third of their value over the first five years. So we're looking at the first five years or so of ownership. That amounts to 14,049 drift from the average MSRP, though that figure will obviously depend on how much the given car costs to buy in the first place. Now, over three years, most cars just lost 17% of their value, which is the smallest drop on record. Some even gained, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, and that, of course, is because of COVID and because of supply chain issues. So uh, what we've had recently over the last probably two years now is a situation where demand has outstripped supply. And whenever that happens, of course, prices go up. Uh, and, you know, we saw it reflected in both the new car market and in the used car market. Uh, but I have this feeling, you know, kind of being out there uh, among all of you car buyers that uh, supply and demand are now starting to match and so prices are starting to come back down to earth. It's already happening. There are a number of stories we wrote about that happening in used cars and when used car prices go down, new car prices will follow. That's exactly right. So, um, and I think they're they're probably tied at the hip to some extent because if you can't get new cars, you can buy used cars and vice versa. So let's talk about the 10 worst depreciating models over the first five years. Number 10 is actually a full-size SUV. It's the Ford Expedition. Um, minus 50.7% of the value or $32,674. Yeah, you know, there's two things about that vehicle, I think, that uh, make it depreciate so rapidly. Uh, number one is it's from a brand that's kind of barely... Well, it's struggling. It's kind of lost in the wood. Ford? Uh, no, I thought it was a Navigator. So it's the Ford... Expedition. Oh, so it's a sister to the Navigator. Yeah, exactly. We'll I talk see. about the Navigator in a second, well, actually. Well, okay, so, so I think one of the reasons, of course, are, is simple, and that is fuel prices, right? Mm. Uh, that car um, lives and dies by how much fuel you put into it, uh, and it's a lot. Um, we had the excursion for a while, <laughs> which we bought when fuel prices went through the roof. Remember, they were like five bucks a gallon, and that thing had how big was the fuel tank in there? Something like forty gallons. Yeah, it was a two hundred dollar fill up on the old excursion, and of course, the expedition is the one right below it in size. Uh, so I think that's number one. Uh, so fuel prices, of course, make big old American trucksters very expensive to operate. And the other one is that I think Chevy owns that segment to some extent with the Tahoe and the uh, Suburban and the Yukon. 
Okay, that's both interesting points. The other thing worth noting too is that most of the vehicles that we see in the fastest depreciating list are expensive vehicles that tend to lose a lot of money rather quickly. We actually don't see any affordable cars on the top 10 most depreciating list, which is interesting. So they're all cars that have a pretty high initial MSRP and the Expedition nowadays can often be one of those vehicles we're seeing nice models touch pretty eye-watering prices. Yeah, you know, Ford, uh, for a while there, was a leader with the Explorer and the Expedition and the Excursion in those big family hall and two and three row vehicles. But then uh, I think they didn't refresh them quickly enough. Uh, and of course, the Suburban, um, as you I'm sure know, is the oldest nameplate. That's what manufacturers call the name of the car, right? Nameplate in the business. Uh, and that has such a deep and long uh, historic, um, pulling at the heartstrings, Americana value that uh, it's a hard one to compete in, right? And this is what this is where this car competes at. So maybe uh, more buyers are opting for a Tahoe or a Yukon versus uh, the Expedition, and uh, they're just kind of, you know, losing a lot of value. Fifty percent is a boatload of value, dude. So number nine. Is there a number associated with that? Yep, negative fifty point seven and thirty-two thousand six hundred seventy-four dollars. So after three years, it's worth thirty thousand less. Third, yep. Wow. So number nine on our list. Um, also a premium car is the Volvo S90. So this is a full-size flagship um, sedan by Volvo. It's down 51.4%. That equates to about $32,321. So over 51% of its value over the first three years. Now, another trend you'll notice, you already mentioned the big gas-guzzling SUV, but a lot of the vehicles on the depreciating side of things are also luxury sedans. Yeah, sedans are not having the moment in the sun right now especially in America and Europe, you still see a lot of them. We've been over there a few times. Actually, you're going over tomorrow, Tommy, to Europe. For, not for a sedan, though. I know, but you're going over there, I'm saying. Um, right. You were taking it back. Did, I, did you forget? Well, I just I don't know what that has to do with the Volvo S90. Well, you could, you could, you could give them a preview of what you're doing there. Um, that, that, I opened the door. I don't you, think you, I can, actually. I'm not even sure I'm allowed to say what I'm doing there. Yes, you are, because you can talk about the... The, the vehicle you're going to, you can't talk about. Any. I can talk about one of the, I'm going to go drive a new all-wheel drive Sprinter. There you go. Yeah, you could say that. Yep. So the new all-wheel drive Sprinter. Yeah. But let's go back to the Volvo S90. Okay. So the Volvo S90 is an interesting car. Um, I actually, I see a lot of these cars as livery vehicles and they have one of the largest back seats in the industry. Really? The Volvo, people, like, like there are livery, there are taxi cabs and limousine services using Volvos? Yeah, I see it a lot actually. Really? Specifically with the I S90. Have, I have never been in a Volvo limo. Um, yeah, the last two I, I were in were actually Volvos. I'll be darned. Uh, S90s, yeah, they're great, great comfortable vehicles with a really large back seat. Um, they're also quite long and they, uh, they are um, a vehicle which is a little bit confusing as to where they sit in the marketplace because Volvo is, of course, a premium brand now in the States, but it doesn't quite have the same brand cachet as like a Mercedes or a BMW. You can get the S90 in both gasoline and hybrid technologies and the starting MSRP is $57,000. So that's part of what makes it attractive. Um, I think it competes more with like the E-Class, I want to say, maybe the that's A6. Not the S-Class? It's their, it's but it their starts, flagship. No, I think it starts at 57000 hmm. Yeah, it's not quite quite that expensive. 
Um, I just don't think it's on a lot of people's shopping list. I think when people think of Volvos, they think of either wagons or they think of crossovers. I think you don't think of a sedan, at least nowadays, when you think of a Volvo. Well, Car and Driver says it competes with the Genesis G90 and LS, like LS, which is the same segment as the S-Class and the A8. Yeah, I think it's a flagship. But one. it's only $57,000 starting, which is interesting. But yeah, yeah, starting. Come on. That means when you get in the dealership, it'll be 90000 You know how that goes. Um, okay. How, how much curious. does it lose on average? I said 51.4%. What, what, you put the number to that? Yeah, $32,000. Whoa, that's a lot of money. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty big drop. I guess, look, uh, gosh, if, if, it, if you're competing in that luxury segment, then your neighbor's driving an S-Class and the other guy or girl across the street is driving a 7 Series, then the, the Volvo is going to get kind of lost in there. Uh, not that it's a bad vehicle, it just doesn't have the um, provenance that like a S-Class or a BMW might have in that same segment. So I, I can see why people would I can see why people would want it and yet I can see why they would have a hard time selling it because you got to find the right buyer. So number 8 on the list comes in with the Audi A6 down negative down 51 and a half percent, excuse me, um, in the first 3 years or $33,331. Same problem, different brand. Um now the A6 is a little bit interesting to me because it's not quite in this ultra premium sedan segment. So we will see another two vehicles coming up shortly in that really big executive sedan segment. The A6 computes with like the 5 Series and the E-Class. And neither of those vehicles are on the list. So what makes the Audi specifically depreciate quicker than the BMW or the Mercedes? I think it's also the cost of maintenance, right? Once your warranty is gone, uh, that Audi is going to be relatively expensive to keep up, especially if it's got a very fancy all-wheel drive system, which it does, a very fancy powertrain, which it does. Uh, it's just going to be, uh, you know, expensive if it breaks, which is always a problem with these high-end sedans. But I would argue it's no more expensive than a 5 Series or an E-Class. No, but... But those two are not on the list, which that, is interesting. But that, does, that doesn't mean that it's going to have any more demand. It just means that anybody who's buying those cars, I think, is well aware that given enough time, and that n number of years could be very small, you're going to get upside down in them, right? The cheapest cars right now to buy are like a, I don't know, 10, 15-year-old Jaguar, right? Because it's going to cost you more money to fix it than it is to... Than, it, than, it, than its value in terms of its overall value. Interesting. If it breaks in a, in a serious way, which it has a reputation for doing. Right, right, right. Um, now, I do believe, actually, yeah. Yeah, this this should be five-year depreciation, right? Right, but we're looking at three-year on the IC, IC cars. I believe it's five, actually. I thought I read the story. I thought it was three. See, here's iccars.com. Yeah. Vehicles that depreciated... Um, the most in five years. But that's a different list, isn't it? This is, this is from iccars.com. Is it the same list? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's five years. So. Yeah, excuse me, I, I misspoke earlier. Yeah, I thought right. it was three. All right. Um, well, there we have it. It's still a lot. It's still a lot, <laughs> yeah, five years. <laughs> you know, losing half the value in five years. Yeah. So that's the A6. Now, number seven on the list, yep. um, coming in with a negative 51.9% drop in value, $41,426, is the Lincoln Navigator. Well, there you go. You've got uh, the, the the Lincoln version. I was just I just jumped the gun too early there on the Ford side of things. Yeah, and kind of the same issue with the Ford, right? Like very large, expensive to fuel SUV, but of course with a much higher starting price. So I would imagine that's why the Lincoln is a little further down on the list than the Ford Expedition. Here's another thing that happened, which might account for it. You know, our neighbor bought a Navigator for his wife, 
Uh, and remember we talked to her and she absolutely hated it. Well, she thought it was too big. Yeah. 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 And it's one of those vehicles that until you have to live with it, like daily park it or uh, daily, I don't know, grocery parking lot it, you're going to re- quickly realize that, like, you know, it's hard to open the door because it's so wide that cars, even if you park it in the middle of the spot, are going to be so close to you that you're going to have a hard time getting in and out, especially if you have kids or dogs. Uh, it's very high. She's a, or a neighbor. She's pretty small. Uh, and so it's not easy to get in and out of, especially if you're elderly. It's going to be, you know, ladder time. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, exactly uh, uh, save at the pump, right? We talked about that. But uh, one of my recurring nightmares would be to have to go fill that thing up from empty uh, at, the, at the local California pump. It's got to be, I don't know, how big is the fuel tank on that thing, would you say? I have no idea. Let's say it's, what, 30 gallons? Sure. That's fair. Times five bucks a gallon, times six bucks a gallon. Yeah. That's yeah. Pretty, pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of money to be, you know, taking the kids around um, and, and having to fill up. I don't know. I think, I, think, I think all those factors come into play when somebody thinks about buying it or when it gets auctioned off, whatever happens. Interesting that both the Navigator and the Escalator on the mo- the worst appreciating list. We'll talk about the Escalator in a second here. But... Um, um, so I was wrong. I said, es- why didn't I said Yukon and Tahoe? Uh, Are they on the list? No, oh, no, no. Phew. Just Navigator and Escalade and Expedition. Lord. And QX80, actually, the Infinity. So number six on the list with a 51.9% reduction in value or $65,000. It is the biggest value number, although not quite the biggest percentage drop, is the Mercedes-Benz S-Class. Imagine owning a car in $65,000 later in just five years. Um, that money just went whoop. Yeah, so I love the S-Class. I mean, it is the epitome of luxury for a lot of people out there. Uh, It has every feature, every bell and whistle that you can get in a car, which means that it will be very expensive to repair when, like, those automatic closing doors break, which they will because everything eventually breaks, right? Or uh, if you've got, I don't know, let's think of some of the craziest, like that, that disco at night lighting the changes in the car, if that goes and stays a hot pink, which it could do, or if that hyper screen decides it's not going to be so hyper anymore and you lose, you know, one or two of the screens in there. I mean, all that is going to put you underwater in a relatively close amount of time. I do believe you can't get the hyper screen. In the S-Class? No. Oh, you can. That's the EQS. You sure? I think you can get an S-Class, too. I don't believe you can. I think it's just the standard screens uh, in the yeah, S-Class. I'm, you can get the hyper screen. I'm quite sure you can't, actually. Really? I remember that was an EQS-specific thing. Huh. Yeah. But keep in mind, too, that this was over the course of five years, which is before this current generation of S-Class came out. But I think certainly there is a perceived concern over overall reliability, even if that's not necessarily the case in some of these newer models, because the new Mercedes quality has really stepped up even within it's, the it's last not, five years. Look, there's two parts of that, right? I, I don't want to make it seem like it's, it's all going to take a giant egg-shaped uh, dump on you. Uh, it will last and it will, but when it does break, which everything does, it's going to be crazy expensive to repair, Tommy. It just is. The other thing, too, is that um, the S-Class is on this list, the 7 Series is on this list, but the car that is definitely missing is the Lexus LS. Which would point to the fact that Toyota has a brand reputation for reliability. Uh, mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a little cheaper to fix an Lexus than uh 
than a Mercedes. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, once upon a time, you could be like, hey, the parts have to come from Germany. But as you know, a lot of these cars are now made in America. So that's not the case. Uh, and then the question becomes, uh, also, here's the other question too, right? Maybe, maybe this has to do with it. Uh, imagine that you're, because this is, at the end of the day, this is always about supply and demand, right? So the more it depreciates, basically what, what you're saying is the less, the less demand there is for it over time. Right. Right, because if there's a lot of demand over time, then it'll appreciate as opposed to depreciate. But maybe what happens is the people who want the S-Class don't want, like, in their minds, a clapped-out five-year-old one when they can have the greatest and greatest, you know, brand-new one. So um, moving on to the next vehicle. Let me ask you this before we move on. What would you rather have, the S-Class or the EQS, the electric one or the traditional gasoline-powered one? Because it is, and I'm sure when I say that, if you guys are listening to this in Europe, we realize you get diesels, we don't. So that's why I say gasoline. Uh, well, the EQS is not five years old, so it certainly isn't going to be on this list. Um, but I think it would be a, a close call. I think they're both great vehicles. Which would you rather have? Um, uh, probably the EQS. I don't like the look of it as much, but I do like the electric powertrain a lot. I, I can't get back to the fact that you can't open the hood. There's just something that inherently is so wrong about that. Maybe it's because I'm an old school type of person and I want to be able to like, like, you know, crawl into every nook and cranny of my car as opposed to having a certified technician do it for me, which is what the car says when you try to open the hood. Uh, so I, I like to feel like I own it. And to me, uh, you know, I own the S-Class. When you can't open the hood, then that's a little, that's like you're renting the car. That is a little extreme. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, it's not like you're you're wrenching on the car. Well, there's a giant HEPA filter under there in case people are curious. Yeah, I mean, and then you got to go let's be to honest. Mercedes and have them change. How much do you think it's going to cost to change that magnificent HEPA filter? The same as the gas S class. Um, the uh, I bet you no, 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 no. I don't think the S. So here's the cool thing. Okay, now you know about this. I think that they both do this. Uh, so it might be the same, but that the filter in the electric one is just more visible, so it's huge. But one of the cool things about the S-Class, if you get this feature, is it tells you the pollutant quality of the air or how many particles or particulates are in the air that's outside of the car versus how many are in the cabin. So there's a little display, which is pretty cool, which shows you how dirty the air is outside and how clean it is on the inside. So the question I have yeah. is if you don't wrench on your own car, which you don't, mm -hmm. especially your new car, you don't open the hood of your car really ever. I've never seen you open the hood except when it's brand new to see what's under there. I just, we what, just what is, the what is the I, concern? Like four times you just open up the hood on that Yeah, because we're doing videos, but otherwise you'd never look underneath there. There's nothing you're going to service. You're so passive-aggressive. This is such a – people say we bicker too much. I'm just sitting here, like, trying to do this list, and now you're calling me basically a wimp who well, doesn't work on his own cars, no. which is absolutely not true. It's a little – well, it is true. We don't work on our own stuff. Well, no, no. Yeah, no. Do I do I change valves, you know, valves? on? The, no, I don't. We have a mechanic that does that. But, you know, do I, uh, uh, you know, check the oil? Yes. Do I – Don't need to do that on that. Electric one. But um, do I do that? Of course I do. But you don't need to do it on the electric one. Do I, you one. know, I do, do I sometimes, if I have an old car, change the spark plugs or the spark plug wires? Yes, I've done that. The very basic stuff I like to do on these new cars, of course, God help you if you actually had to try to do that. But, so then why even open the hood? Because on the EQS, there's no valves to adjust. There's no spark plugs to change. There's no oil to check, right? What do you need to do underneath there? All right. Let's say you, you buy a house, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a room in the basement yeah. that you never use. Why buy, why buy the house with a room in the basement that you're never going to well, use? Well, could it provide me some utility? 
It could because it's a I'm room just saying, I can you, access. But you never use it. You never go there. It, it never. But I could go there because I could do yes. things under there. there but you you're never going to do anything under the hood of your EQS. Once again, very passive aggressive. I'm just. I'm pointing out an interesting point. I just. No. I don't. Why get one over the other? Because I can't open the hood on this one. No, because, you know, here's. All right. I'm, I don't want to bicker, so I don't want to make this into a big argument. But <laughs> it's just but, a silly no, argument. But, but, you're no, making. it's not. It's not a silly argument. It's actually not. It's. It's why people buy cars. Why do people? by off-roaders that are lifted, not because they will ever go off-road, but because they could or they may want to. Whether they go or not is irrelevant to that buying decision. People buy off-roaders in most places, maybe not in Colorado, but they buy them because they could, not because they will, right? And so when you buy a car, the concept that you could work on it, that you could look under there, and that you could figure out what's wrong with it is more important whether you do it or not. And the fact that you can't do it makes me uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Not really. But on the plus side, if you do want to do it, you can do it because it's super easy. I did it on the EQS. No, it's not super. Well, it is super. So the way, if you guys haven't seen the video, basically there's a tradition. No, it's, it's actually not that. There, so there's a Torx bolt, which holds this little cover on, and then the cover hides the actual lever. For and then there's a traditional lever that you open up, but then there are no hood struts. And if you don't open it right, let's say you, you think that there are hood struts, and you slam it open, you're going to slam it into the windshield because there's nothing preventing the hood from actually hit, hitting the windshield. There's no struts there to keep it from overextending or to hold it up. Well... I don't think it'll overextend because there's hinges there, but I, we're right, it won't hold up. Um, but if you do really want to see what's underneath the hood of an EQS, I did a video. LTFL.com. I think what you'll find as the transition to electrification happens more and more, and especially as there's less and less user serviceable items, this is going to be a trend that we're going to have to get used to. No, I don't think so. I think I think this is this is a evolutionary dead end, and I'll tell you why, because to me. The frunk is what is one of those classic electric car features that Tesla has pioneered. And that fact that you don't have one makes you less likely to go buy it than, you, than the one that has a frunk. Because a frunk is, whether you think it's useful or not, now has, it's like a spoiler. It's become a thing for electric cars, right? Most cars have, sports cars have spoilers unless you're in the new, let's see, let's say GT3 RS that has active aero that actually creates downforce that actually does something. Most spoilers are more for looks than they are for functionality. And more frunks, more frunks are more for looks than they are for functionality. But the fact is electric cars are now uh, equipped with them and cars like the Cadillac Lyric that have tiny ones or God help you, any of the Mercedes that don't have a frunk or an openable hood, I think are already starting one step down when people are shopping for them. So I think this is going to go away. And at some point, it's also sloppy engineering, Tommy. It's just lazy engineering. Well, a couple of interesting points going on here. Um, I don't necessarily think it's lazy engineering because, for example, the Hyundai Ioniq 5 is the best engineered EV on the market, in my opinion, right now. And it doesn't have one. It has a front cubby. It's got this, like, engine cover where it's got, like, an inch of space underneath Yeah, you could put, like, a ham sandwich in there. Yeah, so that doesn't really have one. Um, I think have you looked at the Lyric? Lyric's got a ton of space under there and yet no frunk. And I yeah. asked the engineer about that, and she said, she said that she would have rather put the stuff that lives in the back of the vehicle, you know, where you have... Uh, the traditional uh, hatchback, right? There's stuff on the sides. Mm -hmm. Stuffed it in the front and not had a front and give you more room in the back. I get that. I mean, it makes perfect engineering sense. But to me, from a marketing standpoint, the front is almost uh, uh, more critical for its like value as signaling electricity than it is for its value and utility. Well, I'm almost wondering if the opposite's going to happen. 
if we're going to see fewer and fewer vehicles with front trunks. I could see that happening as well. Um, because... I don't know. Let us know in the comments below. I would love to hear your opinion. Do you care that uh, you can't open the hood or don't you care? Is that a non-thing non for you? Which is really the argument that we're having here. Right. Um, because it's one of those things where it, it's kind of a cool thing when you're like, oh, a front trunk, right? But in reality, at least from our ownership experience, we um, almost never use it except in the trucks. The trucks is very useful because of the bed. But like in the Model uh, X, we never open well, the front hood or the front on. trunk. Hold on there. Hold your horses, young man. There are times when they're good to have. So uh, like when I was bringing home uh, very stinky Indian food and I didn't want to have my car smell like the Indian restaurant for the next two weeks, put it in the front. But when, you, when you're out surfing and you got a very wet and slimy and sloppy wetsuit, put it in the frunk. I would argue that most people forget the frunk is there and stick it in the trunk anyways. I'd be really curious to see that data. For example, like we had the Hummer now for a month, and we haven't used the frunk once. It's been it's it's held the little bag for the, the we have there's there's, there's a whole other reason for that. Why is that? You know why that is. Why is it? Because I don't trust that it'll close. <laughs> That's why. I'm afraid that it won't actually open, or if it will open, it won't close because it left me stranded and we couldn't open it. So right. I, I, I've lost faith in that. Uh, remember when the, yeah, when the, when the, when the software the... took a dump, I couldn't open the frunk, and I'm thinking to myself, if I put something in there and the software takes a dump, now I can't get at it. We've got the manual release there. Yeah. yeah, it's got a manual release. Yeah, um, I just uh -huh. think it's like, for example, the Model Y. I'm not sure we ever use that front trunk. I told um, you every time I brought home Indian, but I you would. You don't use... like Indian food. We went there once. No, I used to eat it before <laughs> I figured out that it tore my tummy apart. And it, when we had the Model Y, we used to eat it quite a bit. So that was a real life example. Whenever I brought home stinky food, I would put it in the front to keep it from smelling. Um, Alex Dykes actually had a big discussion about this on his latest Facebook post from Alex Anatos. And he was talking about, do you really need a front trunk? And he had some interesting points that he, he brought up. What was his For points? example, from an automaker standpoint of view, how do you design a cargo area within a craft structure and design it to properly deform and absorb energy when you can't control what's in the middle of the craft structure? In the event of a severe frontal collision, an easily deformable object like groceries or a gym bag is of little concern the crumple zone will deform as expected but what if it's my roller bag which is which is in essence a 12 gauge aluminum cube wrapped in fabric so he talked about the safety there um, he also talked about some other reasons they may not have it including um, the trim parts which you mentioned right it could also be there is concern about ease of servicing of components this seems valid because i've taken apart the front liner of our mach e and lightning and it's a time consuming pain in the bottom but how often does this actually happen rarely um, and then he, he discussed safety as well yeah, I get that. Uh, but then again, you know, there's a lot of things that are in the front of a car uh, that you have to take into account, like starters and but those are designed, alternators. Are they? Those are, are they? designed to be. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Really? They, they have the starter is designed to, 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 to be a crumple thing? Well, you have to consider when you're designing a vehicle where you put the starter so it doesn't end up in your lap. So, of course, those are designed in such a way where they're going to deform away from the passenger compartment. Like engines are designed to deform away from the passenger engines compartment. Are, I think engines are designed to submerge underneath. There you go. Exactly. But the components in the engines are not necessarily designed to But they're all crumple. part of one. I'm saying, like, it's not a changing thing like a starter's always going to be there right it's not like one day the starter's not there and there's a giant rock well, there well i i think i i love alex he's a good friend of mine but i i don't i don't buy his argument uh because i think you know car companies first and foremost uh do things because they sell or don't sell cars and uh as far as i know at least not yet and maybe this may happen and maybe it's someday they may address this but Nobody's crash testing cars with stuff in the frunk to determine whether a gym bag 
versus a ham sandwich affects the safety of a car. I think I think that is that is taking the logic to an extreme that isn't there, especially given in a world where many car manufacturers, and I'm looking at you, Tesla, are basically having us owners and buyers of your cars as your guinea pigs for your safety. And there are much greater problems out there, like for instance, Tesla doesn't have any redundancies built into their uh, autonomous controls because they've decided to only use cameras instead of using LiDAR and instead of using some other of the newest technology. So I, I would I would have that conversation a lot sooner before I would have the conversation whether a ham sandwich is going to affect the crash test worthiness of a, of a thing in the front. All right, number five on the list of quickly depreciating new cars, the Cadillac Escalade ESV down 52.3% or $55,128. Yeah. Once again, gas prices? Yep, and that's also the same with number four, similar class, the Infiniti QX80 down 56.6% or 44265 It could also be the vehicle that's in vogue at the time, right? Maybe the big SUV is starting to go out of vogue a little bit. Yeah, it's hard to capture cool, I agree. And so maybe the, the Caddy was cool when it was, you know, brand new and everybody was using it for their uh, new music videos. And then over time it starts to get... Uh, a little too overused and it becomes it goes things go from cool to uncool very quickly and maybe that's part of it um, I also think once again uh, I'm not sure the reliability on, on that Cadillac but I've heard and this is only obviously hearsay uh, that, they, that they do have issues and that might also be permeating through the through the car world um, what about the infinity I think infinity has a, a brand image problem I think uh, Infinity is a brand that you know people don't associate with, uh, uh, or at least they don't associate it the same way. Even though Infinity's trying to change that, as like Mercedes or BMW or Rolls Royce as a premium brand, and so a lot of people will still be like Infinity. What the heck is that? You know, is it an uppity Nissan? And um, yeah, this is a really interesting point. Um, but number three certainly is a vehicle which you. Could talk about reliability and especially the um, it's the a Jaguar, cachet. isn't it? Yeah, the Jaguar <laughs> XF down fifty four percent or thirty six thousand dollars in the first. I love the XF. Five years. I would buy an XF. I remember uh, the beauty of the XF was that it had the ability uh, to both uh, move you and waft you down the road quietly and comfortably, and then become a very sporty sedan going around curves, at least here in the mountains. I was always impressed by how how sporty that was. XF is a great car. Yeah, I really enjoy driving it a lot. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time behind the wheel of the new one and the older ones. The old one, by the way, is one of my um, dream cars I'd love to own, the, like the 2009, 2010, 2011. You can get those cars for like twelve to 15000 so that's the case where the depreciation helps you in the used car market. And they're really good cars. They're sort of reliable, but they have really cool air vents, right? They look fantastic. They have supercharged engines. Uh, yeah, we'd love to own an XF one day. Yeah, and, you know, that's I'm, I'm also a bargain hunter, and that's one of those cars that, because it's depreciating, and this is true of all these cars, right? If you're looking for bargains, uh, this is where you start. Uh, because these are going to be the cars where you can wait five years and get them at half of what a new car would have cost. Uh, and then, of course, you got to hope and pray. Actually, you don't have to hope and pray. you just got to be smart about which one you buy, right? You try to buy the first owner car, and you try to find an owner that's been very uh, uh, fastidious, dare I say, OCD about their maintenance of their vehicle. And if, you know, modern cars, if they've been maintained and if they've been, uh, you know, serviced regularly, they're going to be just fine five years from now. And number two on the list is a not a fantastic car, to be honest with you, the Maserati Ghibli. So this is the smaller of the two Maserati sedans, right? There's also the, the big one. 
And it's just, it's not. It's a crossover, isn't it? Or is it the No, sedan? no, the Ghibli's a sedan. Oh, the, the, is the Levante. The, the Levante cross, is a yeah. crossover. Yeah, the Ghibli is a sedan. So that has a depreciation of 56.3% in five years or a loss of $51,000. This car came out uh, several years ago. And remember, it had a lot of like um, Chrysler switch gear in it. The quality didn't really provide itself to be that good. The driving experience wasn't that great. It wasn't as fast as it should have been. It just wasn't a super great car. Yeah, I hate to say this, but the uh, uh, Maserati, um, now it's changing with their new sports car, but for the longest time, uh, Maserati has been the brand that has lived not off of their engineering prowess, but off of their brand value. Mm. Uh, and that's a great way to decrease the brand value without actually uh, selling a lot of cars. 100%. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, it's also an expensive car, so I'm looking at T2023. Let's see what it starts at for a Ghibli. Um, what's the sports car called? The MC? $85,000 starting for a Ghibli, what, by the what's way. What's the sports car? The the new one? Yeah, I just saw it The there. MC20? The MC20, yeah. And look, um, we could talk about Maserati just a little bit. Um, I think Maserati... Now that it's on its own and away from Ferrari, right? So it was Maserati was part of uh, what once used to be FCA, which is now Stellantis, which was also which also owned Ferrari. And then uh, Sergio, before he passed away, the CEO of FCA, spun off Ferrari as his own company and basically um, cut the partnership that Maserati had with Ferrari because some of those older Maseratis had Ferrari power plants. And I think that's been a good thing for Maserati because it's forced Maserati basically to, 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 to hopefully compete and live outside of the shadow of Ferrari. In other words, find its own way as a brand and start to come up with its own cars. Like I said, a lot of the cars that they're selling right now had switchgear that you could find in a Chrysler, which obviously is not going to uh, help sell a lot of cars. You know, and, and, and if the best argument for a brand is you'll be the only one on your block to own one, it's going to struggle. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the interiors just aren't that nice either for the amount of money you end up paying for them. So hopefully now that, you know, they're, they're out there not part of Ferrari or at least not partnered with Ferrari uh, and they're coming up with their own cars, we can get back to a brand that is worthy of the Trident. Yeah, so Maserati and then the number one worst depreciating car... Roll the drums, please. Yep, it is the BMW 7 Series, down 56.9% or nearly $62,000 in the first five years. Super complex, <laughs> without the reputation of the S-Class. So it was also worth noting, dated, because I just drove the brand new 7 Series. Yes. Just just a couple weeks ago in Palm Springs. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's a pretty big departure from the old one. It has a third, an optional 31-inch screen in the rear seat. Which is enormously huge. It's like a theater. Yeah, it's like a theater. Yeah, it's, it's really pretty I, interesting. I've, I've been watching some of the reviews, and a lot of people are saying it's one of the best 7 Series ever. Would you agree? Um, yes, I would agree. The thing with the 7 Series is it's kind of been a car which struggles. So BMW has been um, a, a brand known for the driving experience, the ultimate driving machine, right? And the 7 Series lives in a segment which is dominated by rear seat comfort and kind of floatiness. And BMW's kind of struggled like, well, we've got this car which drives great, but the people in this class want to just be kind of chauffeured around. How do you make that balance work? And they have not really done that very well historically. The new one is, I think, a little bit better. It's quite soft and very, very, very plush. Um, looks a little bit weird, but um, yes, it's a vast improvement over the old one. Well, here's the thing, right? I mean, BMW also owns a brand that 
shares a lot of the chassis and drivetrain components of that 7 Series, which, of course, is Rolls-Royce, right? So you've got a car that it depends how you look at it. It could be, uh, you know, an entry-level Rolls-Royce or it could be the top top dog BMW. The, the problem with the 7 Series is, unlike Mercedes, you know, there's, there's two parts to, like, that premium luxury segment. There's the luxury and there's the sporty part, right? Mm. And BMW has always lived on the sporty side of things, the ultimate driving machine. And BMW uh, has struggled to build up the luxury side of that premium segment for themselves. Whereas Mercedes has always lived on the luxury, right? They, they've kind of owned that segment. Sure. Uh, and they've, you know, struggled more or less, probably less to some extent, to build up the sporty part of it because they've always had sporty cars. I mean, they go back to... Um, you know, original Grand Prix cars, but BMW has, has struggled to make a name for themselves in pure luxury. So now you've got this car uh, that kind of lives in this weird space in a brand that is known for building sporty cars, and then, they, then the brand also owns, or the company also owns Rolls-Royce, which is known for building the ultimate luxury cars. So you've mm-hmm. got this car that lives between those two worlds, and that's a hard sell. Yeah, I, I think you're pretty on the money there. So should we go on the other side of the list? Yeah, let's go and talk about the ones that are... Uh, Really great in terms of not appreciation, but there are some cars that actually have appreciated, but the least amount of depreciation. Yeah, so these are the top 10 models that best hold their resale value once again over the first five years. And number 10 is a little bit of a surprise. It's the Chevrolet Camaro. It depreciates 20,000. Oops, nope. It depreciates 20.2%, excuse me, or $7,981 on average in the first five years. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Um, you know, the Camaro's always, I've been saying this a lot now, but it's true, lived in the shadow of the Corvette, obviously. Uh, so, you know, when you have a brand that has two uh, premium sports cars or two halo cars, uh, the, the, the bottom one of those two always tends to struggle. And I'm talking about, let's, let's be real here. So you've got like Nissan with the uh, GTR and then the new Z, right? But for a long time, it was the old Z and the new GTR. You've got Chevrolet. Corvette with the Camaro underneath it in some ways. Ford had the uh, GT with the Mustang underneath it, but the GT was such a specialty car that it really didn't, you know, it was $400,000, so it really wasn't at play. I don't know. I like the Camaro. I don't like the belt line. What, what am I going to tell you? I, I think you sit way too low in the thing, uh, and that's always been a problem. I always like like being able to see out of a car, and I'm pretty tall, but in the Camaro, I feel like I'm looking out gun slits. Um. I think one thing you'll notice about this list is a lot of the models on this list are iconic nameplates that maybe don't change that much from generation to generation. So these are cars that in the used market, um, you could buy one that's five years old and it's not going to be all that different from the current model. And I'm talking about nameplates like Camaro, Mustang, Wrangler, right? We see all three of these nameplates on this list of the least depreciating cars. And I think that's the reason, right? If you buy a few year old Camaro, it's going to be basically the same as a brand new Camaro, especially because this generation's getting I, old. I, I got to be honest, I've had a hankering for a Camaro. I don't know why. You said you just, you can't see out of them. I know, but I've had a hankering. It's one of those cars that like, sometimes car, when cars like uh, are, are fatally flawed, they're also really cool. <laughs> and so I've kind of had a hankering. I was thinking, I, I was thinking we should get an old Camaro, not not too old, but the current one, but one of the first ones because they are becoming affordable, uh, and they are cool, dude. You have to admit they are cool. They have always been cool, uh, and that's uh, one of those kinds of cars that as they get older, they do get cooler in some ways. Well, it's also one of those cars. They are right, maybe not the '80s, Z08s, Z28s. I mean, but you know, those were the problem was they had nothing under the hood. But the new ones, the new ones, as Nathan would say, certainly have lead. In the pencil. I don't like the new ones. Really? Yeah. Not really my thing. Um, and the other issue, too, is that 
they don't get that cheap. So you just said they, they're yeah, I know. You know, they're 20%. not that cheap because they don't change yeah. them. Now, number nine on our list, moving to something completely different, kind of a surprise to see on here, down 19.9% over the course of five years, or $3,183, is the Nissan Versa. Now, of course, you kind of figure that affordable, reliable cars would be on here. The Nissan Versa, one of the most affordable cars you can buy. Reliability, a little bit of a question mark for me on the Versa, but it actually made the top 10 vehicles that hold their value best. Yeah, it could be that thing where, you know, used car prices have gotten so expensive yeah, that the Versa, be. even though it isn't, you know, it was for the longest time before the Note came around, the cheapest car you could buy in America. So you could get like, a, you know, a five-year-old, a very affordable Versa versus like a 10-year-old, I don't know, you know, much less affordable Maxima or something bigger, right, in that class. Mm -hmm. Or Rogue, right, which is a crossover, which everybody's going to want. So maybe it's it's just a case that the reason it isn't dropping in terms of its value is because it's it was affordable to begin with, and five years later, it's even more affordable. Now, speaking of affordable cars, it's actually going to be the next car on the list, the Toyota Corolla. So kind of a similar thought process, down 19.8% or $4,617 in the first five years. Corolla, when you talk about cars that'll last a long time, never need maintenance. And cars, once again, that aren't necessarily bought by enthusiasts, cars that are just kind of bought as runabouts. The Corolla, certainly at the top of that list. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, there's that saying, Miata is always the answer. Well, realistically, it's Corolla, right? You need, a car, you need a cheap car quick because your car broke and you need something to get you to work, Corolla, right? You're a college student and you don't have a huge budget, but you need something to drive to school, Corolla. Uh, you're an elderly couple who, you know, who, who have just got rid of the kids, you're empty nesters, and you need something that's going to last you, you know, for the next 10 years because you're on a fixed budget, Corolla, right? It's just the answer to a lot of, a lot of people's needs. So number seven on the list, yep. back to an iconic nameplate of enthusiast models, the Ford Mustang, down 19.4% or 7,528. Now, this current generation of Mustang has been around for a bunch of years. They did facelift it, I think, in 2018. But even still, if you look at a five-year-old Mustang, it's going to be pretty similar to the to a brand new one. Now, not the newest generation, which just was just revealed. So I'd love to see this list in another couple of years, see if that Mustang will still be on there now that we have the newest generation. But it's down 19.4% or $7,528. Yeah, you know, I love the Mustang. Um, once again, it feels like one of those forbidden fruit cars that's going away with electrification. Uh, it's got the big old uh, five liter GT. Uh, it is, I think, synonymous with American muscle cars, with American sports cars, with American affordable sports cars, right? The interior is not grand, uh, but the driving experience and the styling uh, and what it says about you is all really cool. So I could see why, you know, the coolness factor extends well beyond the first four years into its fifth year and people still lust after them, people still want them. It's still a reward for hard work. Uh, you know, it's the car that, uh, Anybody in high school would be, you know, super happy to get for their 16th birthday, be it new or used. And we just had one, right? We just had that 97, and you, even you loved it. And that's the SN95, which most Mustang people, Mustang, what would you call a Mustang person? I don't know. Mustangers? Mustang ice? Mustang... Mustang Gelinos, I don't know, uh, would agree that is, is, is you know, the, the worst of the generations, and yet even that one was cool. Yeah, once again, the iconic nameplate thing, I think, really helps, um, especially for American models. We see that in several cases on this list. Number six on the cars that best hold the resale value, the Subaru BRZ, which is 
the um, the sports car that was developed by Subaru and then sold, of course, under Toyota as well. Interesting that the, the, the Scion of the Toyota 86 isn't on here, but the BRZ is down 18.2% or $5,985 in just five years. You don't like the BRZ very much, at least the old one. I, once again, Subaru doesn't lend us cars, so I don't you know, pretend to be able to comment on them, but I can talk about the Toyota 86, which we just drove. Which is basically the same car. Which is basically the same car, which uh, uh, I just loved. I mean, it's, you know, it's the last of the affordable. Average new car price is $48,000. If you can find yourself a new one, uh, for you know anything $5,000 or less above sticker, you'll be doing well. Uh, and the new ones reflect that. So if the new ones are selling between five dollars and $10,000 over sticker, uh, you know, that can be reflected in the price of the used ones. Uh, it's, it's a vehicle that uh, can be modded. It's a vehicle uh, that has you know, Toyota's reputation for reliability. Uh, it's fun, it's fast-ish, uh, it's cool, and yeah, yeah, I, I don't fit, but I kind of sort of fit. But it's a it's a it's an affordable and uh, desirable sports car. What more could you want? Um, right. Okay. Now this is an interesting one. Number five is the Honda Civic down sixteen point three percent or four thousand two hundred and thirty seven dollars. Great, reliable, solid transportation. By the way, did you see that twenty twenty two Civic that had two hundred and forty eight thousand miles on it? It was a year old. Yeah, that was a crazy story. I guess it was somebody who did medical devices or medical Well, that's what people courier. are thinking, yeah. yeah. Um, and typically, medical couriers will drive 16 hours in a day, every day, or five days a week. So they wrap up, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of miles in a year. Um, this one, though, 248,000 miles, which is pretty crazy. And it's up for um, sale at a used car dealer for a shocking $18,999 for a 22 Civic with over 240,000 miles. So that's a great example of like, I would love to be able to figure out whether it's miles or age that makes a car worse. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the number of miles driven or the amount of time that it's actually spent living in the sun and in the snow and in the wind, you know, you know what I'm saying? I wonder like, like if the seats are still good and if the controls are still good and if the dash is still good, because it hasn't really been, uh, you know, sitting around outside and been dinged up and uh, lived you know a hard life, uh, or if the fact that it has so many miles, uh, you know, accounts for a lot of wear and tear on it. I, I don't know. I, I'd love to. I'd love to see it. I w certainly wouldn't pay seventeen thousand uh, dollars. But going back to the list, basically everything I said about the Corolla, you can say about the Civic. Two hundred forty thousand miles in a year, averaging six hundred eighty miles in a day. By the way, that's a lot. Or twenty eight miles an hour for an entire year. It's been a fleet car. Well, I'm um, it was, reading. It was like driving all the time. I'm reading it here. Yeah, yeah. probably good good point. But um, um, this this outlet reached out to the. Uh, the place where it was serviced. And it has just tons and tons of routine service. Um, and it was, yeah, owner was a medical courier who drove 100 miles per day. Um, they said there were only two things, by the way, in that car that were More weren't. than 100, 600 miles per day. Oh, excuse me, hundreds of miles a day. Yeah. Drove hundreds of miles per day, yeah. excuse me, yeah. Um, and looking at the Carfax, there were only two wreckers that weren't routine, mm. a broken grill and then a, um, a replaced lug nut. But that's it. Yeah, if I were, if I were you know, uh, Toyota bought that million-mile uh, Tundra, right, mm -hmm. and took it apart... I think if I were Honda, I'd probably be one of the earliest ones to buy that and, and see. It would be a good, uh, it would be a good like uh, test of concept. See if the stuff they engineered actually <laughs> held up over that. And where else are you going to find one that's got that many miles in such a short amount of time, right? Normally, you'd have to wait ten years to get those kinds of numbers and data. We should um, uh, buy it. No. Yeah. <laughs>
no, there you go. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, number um, four on the list, a vehicle which is known for its resale value, the Toyota Tacoma, down 14.9% in five years, just 14.9%, or $5,926. Wow. Yeah, not much money, and I know a lot of folks that bought Tacoma several years ago and sold them for basically what they bought for. This is actually a good tip. If you're going to buy a Tacoma, especially one that's a couple years old, just buy a new one um, in the normal market. This is kind of a weird market. I should preface that. Maybe you can't get one for MSRP, but typically you're much better off buying one on MSRP than buying one that's a few years old. Hey, can you think of any other vehicle that owns its segment as dominantly as the Corolla owns the midsize truck segment? I'm it's not saying Tacoma. That- Tacoma, I'm sorry. Uh, what did I say? The Corolla. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah Corolla in the midsize truck segment. That'd be funny. Uh, can you think of any other vehicle? I, I, I know that you know there are Rangers and there are Frontiers and there are Colorados and there are uh, Canyons that live in that segment, and not to forget the Ridgeline, of course. Uh, but it feels to me like every truck buyer I ever meet who wants a small truck, by that I mean a midsize truck, always wants a Tacoma. Maybe that's just a Colorado thing, but it seems to be the one that everybody aspires to. Yeah, 100%. Well, yeah, why it's is that? Lifestyle. Um, it's just a vehicle. You said you love the look of it. It's a vehicle that has proven itself to be the most durable truck, arguably on the road for the last 40 years, hmm. right? And it's a vehicle that doesn't change that much. And when it does change, it's fairly minor. So it makes total sense why it's on the list. It's from a brand that people trust. It's a nameplate that people trust. And it's the number four least depreciating car. Or actually vehicle, I should say. It's a truck. So number three. Now, this is interesting, right? So we looked at the Corolla, the Versa, the Tacoma, to some extent, the Civic. These are typically affordable cars. Um, And then on the cars that depreciate the worst, number one is the 7 Series, which dropped 56.9%. And one of the reasons we said for that is because it was so expensive. But number three on the least depreciating list is actually the Porsche 911. Now, in the course of five years, it will lose on average about $20,000 in value, which sounds like a lot of money compared to the 5,000 of the Tacoma. But if you look at it relative to the MSRP, that's only a loss of 14.6% in five years. If you dig further into that story that Zach wrote. Well, we'll get there in a second. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the newer ones actually gained value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once again, it's like what you said. I mean, it's iconic, right? Iconic cars. And let's face it, Porsche 911s have had maybe because obviously electrification but they've had kind of this moment in the sun where now like like rolexes and porsches over covid like, like became <laughs> the most desirable things that anybody wanted and it's only it's only 911s i shouldn't say porsches and it's like only rolex daytonas and submariners it's not all models and i don't know my watches i'm just picking the ones that, that i know because uh, they're the most famous of that brand but um it, like people were like you know what i'm not putting off uh, buying this thing, uh, I may get COVID and die, so I'm going to go and get myself a 911 or, or a Submariner, and you know, doesn't matter how much it costs. Uh, and then, of course, uh, supply chain issues, you know, stop Porsche from building 911s, so they're almost impossible to get. There's an incredible wait for them, and you've had this perfect, uh, I don't want to say storm because that's such an awful cliche, but you've had this, you know, perfect combination how about that is that a better combination of factors where um there's been huge demand and little supply making making the vehicles both new and old unobtainium that's the best word for it very interesting okay ready yes keep going number two and number one both wranglers the jeep wrangler unlimited the four-door 
lost on average 8.7% of its value. Yeah, the world's gone Wrangler crazy. We've, I feel like you were there first. <laughs> We've had how many Wranglers now? Yeah, a bunch. And then number one, it just says really quick, 7.3% on the two-door Wrangler, or just 2000 bucks. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe the Bronco, like like you threw the Bronco into the mix, and it, it's like adding uh, a spark to a fire, and it just went and everybody wants these like hardcore off-roaders. Uh, two of our friends right now are buying Wranglers, uh, the four buys. Uh, and I, I when I when I remember reading when uh, Wrangler sold like, almost two hundred and fifty thousand units a year, that's a quarter million units a year. I just I was like it was beyond a head scratcher. I I, I love the vehicle, uh, and I much as I love it, I, I don't understand why there is so much. A demand for a vehicle that is so 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 off-road focused that it makes it very uh, hard to drive and live with when you're not off-road. You see, you know, I mean, I'm not hard, but in comparison to other cars, you know, they're they're pretty unfuel efficient. Uh, they're pretty uh, basic. Uh, they're pretty. And maybe those are the things that people want. You know, maybe they want something basic and. And, and utilitarian and not luxurious and comfortable uh, because it speaks to who they are, I'm guessing. So that's not the full story, though, because these lists were based off the, the, the previous five years, right? Right. But really, the market exploded in 2020, and we saw huge increases in shortages and all sorts of, you know, increases in prices, shortages of supply. And some cars now are actually selling more used than they were new. So the Wrangler... Um, based on the past five years, dropped in value a couple thousand dollars. But if you shorten that time scale to three years and incorporate, you know, that 2020 time period, 2021, 2022, and we saw those vehicles increase in value, all of a sudden, the Jeep Wrangler has now gained, on average, $90 since new. So if you bought one in 2019, it's worth about $90 more than you paid for it. And you drove the wheels off of it, it still would be worth $90 more. Um, so that's 0.3% of an increase. The Porsche 718 Cayman, up 1.8% over the past three years. 1342 The Jeep Wrangler Unlimited, the four-door, up 2%, or $880. 75% of Wranglers are the four-doors. Yep, and then the Toyota RAV4 Hybrid, up 2.5% at $883. Very efficient. Yep, very efficient, mid very reliable. Mid-size crossover, the hard most popular get, segment. And number get. one? Yeah, the Porsche 911 actually up 5.7% over the past three years, or $11,373. So good luck finding one at MSRP. <laughs> Yeah, good luck finding any of those at MSRP. Uh, I also think with the Wrangler, uh, you know, like I said, let's let's bring this conversation full circle. We, we went to Peterson's to buy this uh, Ram, right? Mm -hmm. We noticed, and I've seen this a lot, uh, that you can get the Gladiator, which is the Jeep pickup truck mid-size, yeah. but you can't get the Wrangler. I, I think that for some, some, there's been a decision taken at Jeep to build more Gladiators for whatever reason than Wranglers. So Wranglers have been harder to get. That, they're not like Porsche 911s, you can get them, but the Gladiator is certainly the one where you go to the dealership and you'll find them lined up versus like a handful of Wranglers on the side. Mm. And I don't know why that is. Maybe, maybe I mean, the obvious answer is maybe Jeep makes more money selling Wranglers. I think that's a good gladiators. bet. Yeah, I mean, they're typically a higher transaction price with the Gladiator compared to Wrangler because it's a more expensive vehicle overall, so maybe that's why. And they're built both in Toledo, Ohio. Yeah, and I I love them. Uh, you know, I, I we go to Easter Jeep Safari every year. It's my favorite week of the entire year, uh, and so you know I'm I'm very happy for Jeep that they've got such a hot commodity on their hands. I think you know this has been a long time coming, especially given the fact that the brand has been around you know since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So it it didn't like you know when you look at it, it just didn't 
it, it didn't explode overnight, right? It's been this slowly building thing that just erupted in the last five years. Uh, and I wonder what's next. That's my biggest question. I wonder how is that sustainable, and what, what comes next? I um, yeah, I, I I wish I could predict that because I'd be buying them right now. <laughs> If it's you, it'll be like minis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you were you were we were. Let's face it, we were. I think we were early to the Jeep thing. Well, early-ish. I mean, you know, people like Rick Payway have been there forever, uh, uh, but uh, we were there pretty early, uh, and hopefully, you know, with the mini thing, we're there pretty early too. You think maybe at some point those will start to because we have we have this sickness for minis and and, and Jeeps. Well, if they do, <laughs> you'll be the first to hear about it. Really? Yep, yep. Well, guys, let us know what you think in the comments below. All right, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this or watch it on YouTube. As always, uh, check out alltfl.com. I especially want to thank the Patreons uh, that helped make this podcast possible. Mm -hmm. Without you guys, uh, we, I saw we had a couple of new people who joined, so thank you very much. Uh, and it's going to be a busy week. If you're listening to this, uh, uh, we'll have a lot of stuff from the LA Auto Show. I'm going there uh, tomorrow to... Uh, cover all the new car reveals and uh, just to give you a preview i know that the fiat 500e is going to be there oh yeah is that what's supposed to be coming yes and the new electric fiat uh for all you porsche fans the new dakar the off-road 911 is going to be there and they're teasing the new prius too and i'm going to be uh yeah hopefully getting you first-hand information on the newest prius uh those are just a few of the cars that are going to be at the LA Auto Show, so check out all TFL. Well, I'll be busy as a beaver getting you the latest, greatest, fastest scoop on all things new in the automotive world. All right, guys. We'll see you in the next one. Yep. Thanks, Tommy. Ciao. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.